This is One Heat Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. Look like gangbangers working the local 7-Eleven. Robbery homicides take you. Give me all you got! Listen. Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. I'm trying to stop guys like me. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's LA crime opus Heat, one minute at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to One Heat Minute. I'm your host, Blake Howard. It is the 91st minute of Michael Mann's 1995 crime opus. And sometimes there are moments when I record this show that make me giddy. One of them is this moment. Uh, I, in the 50, I'm going to go back to it, on the 55th episode of this very show... I demanded, I, I suddenly had an epiphany. Garth Franklin says that I freestyle this show sometimes and he's 100% right in this moment. In the moment, I was right in the pocket and I was thinking, I just missed out on one of what I would call the best opportunities ever. I got it and I didn't get it. What I got to do was be a part of Australia's best movie podcast, Hell is for Hyphenates. A hundred months long cataloging every great auteur and I missed by one episode to do that show with the original hosts Paul Anthony Nelson and Lee Zachariah and so during Paul Anthony Nelson's episode on the 55th minute of heat I right at the end said wait I'm going to get you two back on this show and what better time to promise to come together than for one of the coffee house scenes the dynamic duo of podcasting my pacino and de niro of australian movie podcasts <laughs> coming together in the scene and oh me uh, the architect the professional obsessive michael mann right there in the pocket to watch it unfold ladies and gentlemen May I please welcome the reunification of the Hell is for Hyphenates podcast featuring me, Blake Howard, just being a special goddamn guest like you are listening, Lee Zachariah and Paul Anthony Nelson. Welcome back to One Heat Minute. Hey. Oh, my God. What an intro. Oh, man. Your listeners are expecting heat, and they're going to get double team. They're going to get Van Damme and Rodman. Well, I was going to say, like, it's flattering to be called the Pacino and De Niro podcasting because most people call us the Scott Plank and Alex MacArthur of of, uh, film podcasting. That's a uh, an LA takedown deep cut. uh, So deep. That's so deep. Oh, God. I like... OG Henry McCauley. Oh, my God. I actually can't believe this is happening, guys who are listening. This is so, I'm so giddy, I really have to get it together. Oh, the 91st minute. Wow. You guys, if you My guys... Are, if you guys... Well, yeah, many... Actually, now that we mention it, there have been so many minutes that have been leading up to this scene, and there have been so many people who've been on the show, I'm, and so many people who've been asking who is in that middle that, those middle minutes. So just now, as you guys are listening... The amazing Manola Dargis was on episode 89. We've had the special live show at the Sydney Film Festival, which I hope you guys enjoyed and, and got to feel what it was like to be there. Um, and these two gentlemen are here. And we are right in just an incredible scene. And it is literally, it's four lines. It's not even a page of dialogue. So for folks listening, it's it, on, on the 1994, the last script you can really find, a March revision, this is pre-shooting, it is maybe a page of dialogue, but these guys are doing so much extra and the script is pretty different. I had to actually manually write it out today when I was looking, when I was looking at it to do this show and I was looking at it. I was like, we are right in the middle of one of the best, if not the best scene ever committed to American crime cinema. So it is my pleasure to watch it with these two amazing gentlemen right now. And then we're going to come back. And we're going to hopefully live up to the hype of my intro.
Oh, sorry, I went I went a little early there, guys, on the pause. But that is your minute, the ninety first minute of Michael Mann's. That is an interesting point. <laughs> iconic. It is iconic. <sighs> it's just that um, what is so striking to me is, uh, and and I I won't spoil an upcoming minute, but that that has already come a bit that another guest has already sort of talked about this, but I just marvel at all the stuff that each of the actors is doing with their face, whether it's conscious or unconscious, just how mm. when they decide to look at one another, when they decide to lean back, when they decide to sort of punctuate what they're saying with a gesture, I'm just, I just marvel because it's like so many dialogue scenes are just boring as batshit and no one's doing any business of performance. They don't realize that their entire face is a canvas, but these two guys, there's just no one better in the whole, there's just no one better at understanding what a camera is capturing on a massive Epic screen in this beautiful 35 mil. It's just gorgeous. And there's also, I mean, neither one is overdoing it. Yeah. It's not like they're giving all the face while they're saying these lines. It's very natural. And particularly Vincent uh, Pacino's character seems to be reaching out a lot more to, to Neil than the other way around. Neil's trying to play a poker face. He's trying to play it a bit cool and a bit sort of like, yeah, you know, I'm not getting close to you, copper. I can see this good cop shit you're trying to do. <laughs> and whereas Vincent's giving him full good cop, you know, he's like he's all sort of like, you know, being very candid about his life and and uh, and trying to relate and, you know, giving him little smirks here and there. And, yeah, it's really, it's really interesting. He's trying to build that intimacy. See, I, I think it's actually more more sincere than that on both of their their sides. Like Pacino, it's not it, – I don't think he's, he's opening up as a sort of device to get him to talk. I think, like, he knows that, that – um, Macaulay's too smart for that. I think he just recognizes that this is a one guy I can talk to about this. This is the mm. one guy in my life I can open up to because no one else is going to understand where I'm coming from. And so he's been quite genuine in opening up about it. And I think um, Macaulay is responding. Maybe at first he's a little standoffish, like, where the hell are you going with this? The same way when he says, do you want to go get a coffee? He's like, uh, yeah, okay, sure. <laughs> What's happening? And I think he's still standoffish, but I think his standoffishness throughout this scene comes from the fact that, as he says, I, I don't want to get attached because Macaulay's trying not to get to get attached. He's the one who's trying to stay detached from everything in his life. And I think he recognizes, oh, this guy's a kindred spirit, except I have to keep my distance because at some point, if he do got me boxed in, I got to <laughs> I got to take it down. Mm. I, I like I, I I agree. I, I think it's kind of twofold. It's almost like there's a feeling out in the pre- in the previous minute, I think Paul, you're right on the money. It's still playing good cop. He's he's still sort of going, I know everything about you. He's laying the cards on the table going and everything about you. But as soon as Neil flips it and goes, This regular type life that you're lecturing me about, is that your life? It's this weird beat when he goes it's almost like an unconscious. He just, it's like verbal diarrhea, which just kicks off this minute. He's like, no, no, my, my life. Oh no, my life's a disaster zone. <laughs> like, mm. it's like, talk about realness. Like my life's a disaster zone. You know, I've got a stepdaughter so fucked up because her step, you know, stepfather's this large type asshole. I've got a wife. We're passing ourselves on the downslope of marriage, my third. And I think it's in the beats there that draws Neil in. And that's when Neil almost mm. feels like he has to step into. I feel like he's being, um, I think the word we've used a couple of times with some of the roles, like uh, when describing like John Voight and and uh, as Nate and Neil before, is like fraternal. I think there's like a moment where he's like trying to give advice. Like oh, a guy once told me, you know, to do this job. You know, basically he's like, you can't have any attachments. So mm. I don't know why you as a cop think you can just live a happy, normal life like a, like a regular person if you're expected to chase guys like me all day. Like I think that's like... Mm. It's, it's like they have the exact same job because one's on one side of the coin he thinks oh i I should have a normal life and the other's (laughs) like no i can't have a normal life and they're both they're both at opposite extremes of what they're expecting from their lives but they basically have the same job yes Mm. and that's the thing i i agree with both like i agree with your your uh take as well lee because i think they're warming up to that and i think blake nailed it in that 
I think that's how the conversation begins. I think he's trying to draw him out. And he knows Neil's smart, but he's, you know, he's, and then, but that, that beat, which is encapsulated in Pacino's beautiful delivery of, yeah. <laughs> and then suddenly <laughs> from there, everything kind of begins to, to find this new groove. And yeah, and I think then it does become more of a, more of a relationship. And, and so I think what starts off as a good cop tactic becomes something more sincere. Um, and it's just so beautiful. I like the, uh, the fact that, can we talk about the framing of behind De Niro? We have this grid. It's like, there's like a grid of windows. Like it's sort of, it's almost like he's in a cage. Yes. I'm oh, ju- yeah. Just seeing that top right of frame. Hold yes. On. Top He's right of frame. He's just constantly yeah. that behind him. And, and, also, and also the really hard line of that guy's beard. It's a really exceptionally well manicured beard in between both of those guys. It's like, it's like <laughs> Craig David level beard cure in there. I'm never going to unsee that. Just And so I'm glad I hope that you guys watch it. Lots of Sam Pellegrini. Like Wes, ben- Wes Bentley in, uh, in uh, what's <laughs> it called? Games. Hunger Games. That's that level. Of, it's the Bentley. It's the Bentley from now on. That's what we're calling it. But um, a lot of Sam Pellegrino. But no, I love. I, you're totally right. There's some really great. There's just the... Um, and nothing happens as as we've we've come to discuss on this show. Nothing happens with Michael Mann as a mistake. Um, you know, mm-hmm. around what's behind his Oscar for Scent of a Woman or something? <laughs> <laughs> possibly, possibly, uh, just a collage of his face, all the faces he pulled in um, uh, in uh, Sea of Love. Every single face from Sea of Love is behind him Perfect. right now. I was, I was going to go with Devil's Advocate. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, maybe cowering sound recordists, like just waiting for him to let rip with another great ass or something like that. Is, <laughs> is that guy in the middle the guy who originally played Vincent Hanna or his stand-in? <laughs> there's a guy seven seconds into this minute, there's a guy behind him who looks like he's wearing exactly the same clothes, except he's about 20 years younger. Anyway. Similar haircut. Yeah. Similar haircut. Going on there. Yeah, look, it's, I, I never I, go anywhere without my stand-in. It's always <laughs> behind me. I think it, what's funny is what and what I see now in this scene is it's like because everything is so staged and beautifully and perfectly framed and there's a lot of like, um, you know, uh, match cuts in the shooting and they're trying to sort of imply a lot of other stuff that's happening. What I love in this scene so much though, is like it is in no matter what is happening in the background here, there is too much going on with these guys and their eyes and their faces. There's too much to even to, to do, to do anything with how they're doing it because what's, what I think is even more important and what's so perfect in the synergy of the scene and why it's kind of mad, you know, to, to, to put it on front street, like it's kind of mad that there were people who believe these guys didn't even sit at a table together. Right. Like, you know, we're talking about mm. this movie. I thought that, and we discussed this in our <laughs> minute. Like, it drove me crazy that there's never like a, a two shot where they're both. You know, it's like there, there could be a standard, it could be someone there. But yeah, you you watch it more and more, and you're like, no, 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 this is. But I think it's know, and and it's a great steal as well. What I what I keep looking at though is when you're watching the performance, is watching the other guy. Like, I find myself doing this thing where I'm like w- taking my eyes to the right of frame, and I'm watching. You know, the nods. I'm watching how he's reacting because they echo. So if when when Pacino's doing something with his face, my friend says Pacino, uh, my friend says De Niro um, is p- permanently on a 45-degree angle with his head in this movie. It just never moves for the entire time. <laughs> and I, I, it's like whenever there's a gesture, you, you almost watch Pacino on the opposite of De Niro do an opposing gesture or like a counter. Like if he leans forward, he leans back. If one leans forward, the other leans back or straightens up. There's all these really great... They're doing a dance. Yes, yes. This is a romantic scene. This is a meet cute (laughs) because this is a love story about these two characters who finally come together. And like, I don't know if I'm kidding. I don't think I'm kidding about this because it's, it's not... This scene is not the fireworks that the trailer made out. It wasn't the fireworks you're expecting from uh, from these two guys who were definitely in their fireworks stage uh, of their career, particularly Pacino. And it's just this really, really low key coffee, and it does it does sort of play like the first date, and maybe the head tilts are kind of you know one goes left, the other goes right. You got to go into the kiss at some point. <laughs> go head angled the right way. 
but so you, you don't bump you were mentioning mirroring as well, which is also a dating technique, you know, like with mirroring somebody else's movements to show you that you like. If I look so, up yeah, mirroring yeah. on Urban uh, Dictionary, <laughs> please don't. What am I going to find? I'm doing just, it. Urban Dictionary is fine. Just not Google Images, okay? Oh no! Oh god! Just, what have we don't done? Do that. But, but you, you know what? I mean, what it, what what I've learned in this show is how scenes echo or scenes reference in other scenes and where where is where are we at in vincent's life let's sort of stage it in the night he's gone home he's asked justine where they're going she said nothing he says oh i'm sorry where are you going and she's going out so we know that justine's heading off to see ralph who we (laughs) poor ralph um who we meet later on in the film and this is what Pacino decides that Hannah decides to do with his time. So he's going off for his yeah. own meet cute. This is his Ralph, except he doesn't get to take him home. Is that, is that, what, is that what we're saying, Lee, with these... You didn't tell me what mirroring meant on Urban Dictionary, but is this what we're saying? Um, the, no, it's actually quite romantic. Oh, that's uh, nice. I, I decided not to report that because it was disappointingly uh, unsorted. Oh, my God. Urban Dictionary. See, I'm, all like, I'm, all, I'm all about the romance, guys. You know? <laughs> Um, but yeah, you're right because he's not, you know, he's not a guy who cheats. He's, he's the, his cheating is with his job. Yes. You know, like his other side of his relationship is, is with that. So it only makes sense that the person he's going to go see someone else with is going to be his arch enemy. The person he's obsessed with chasing. Yeah. And I think. True. Oh no, go, Lee, go. No, no, you go. go. Uh, I I was just going to add is like. The person that he's obsessed with chasing also, like, in this moment has, he sort of affirmed, like, right at the beginning of the scene where this guy doesn't live a regular type life. So if we're talking about, like, Mm. matching or mirroring, right now this is the moment where they actually find where they have the most in common. Like, this this particular chunk of the scene is going, you know, it's the part of the date where someone says... And I would imagine it would be like me. It didn't happen with my wife. I, I like I convinced her later, but it'd be like me dating a girl ten years ago, and she was like, "Oh, you know what movie I love? Heat." I'd be like, <laughs> "Will you marry me?" Like right then on the spot, it would have just happened. I would have, uh, or I would have tested her. I think I might maybe maybe in hindsight I could have tested. I'm like, "Oh well, you know, my life's a disaster zone." And if she could pick up, then she would. <laughs> We would keep going, and if she couldn't, then it's over. But um, but yeah, if she if she couldn't, then you're passing each other on the downslope of a relationship. <laughs> We're passing each other on the downslope of a date. My third, and then just leave. <laughs> uh, just leave. Get up. And- I, I'm I'm kind of like the same same, but with uh, Stan Brackage's dog star man. If a girl starts quoting that to me on a date, uh, no, I'm not getting anything for that one. All right. <laughs> Lee's Um, Lee's in a uh, Lee's saying that, and Paul's just biting his hand, going, "Oh God, I've heard this before." I've heard this. I get that reaction. (laughs) Um, So, is it true this scene was unrehearsed? Is is that how the way the legend goes that they uh, they didn't rehearse it? Uh, The legend is that they did screen. Oh, sorry, they did um, table reads. So they did the table reads Mm -hmm. where they just read. Everyone in the film did run-throughs of the entire film. Um, and De Niro was first cast as Neil McCauley. And, and then it went mm-hmm. to Al and Al said, I'm in for Vincent. And so what happened straight away, De Niro said, let's not rehearse this scene. Mm-hmm. Like, and what the most interesting tidbit that I've found is, you know, you hear, let's not rehearse it, let's not rehearse it. And for De Niro, he's like, we don't need to do, like, and this is what a great, excuse me, what I heard is, is like a great film actor moment. He's like, we don't have block, like, there's not too much blocking. It's not overly complex. We're not moving places. There's no choreography. We're both sitting down. And he's like, I feel like we will get the most spark if we are just being organic and just bouncing off of one another so they they definitely did the read so they knew what they were going to say um but but 
again, just De Niro being so seasoned as a film, you know, as a film actor for such a long time, Pacino much also a bit more eclectic. He's done a lot of stage work, but he was like, we're not, we're not, you know, racing through the city. We're not doing any of this weird stuff. The camera's not moving. It's locked off. It's just us two. So we just get to perform. We know exactly where our, where we're sitting, what our blocking is. We know what it's going to look like. We don't have to overcomplicate it. Let's just go for it. And so that's when they just did it on set. And this is take 11. And what's really yeah. funny, I found that the second trailer for the film has an alternate take because the way that Neil says one of the lines is not yes. the line that's in the final film and it drives me nuts every time I watch that trailer. Thank because- you, because <laughs> I, I used to watch the trailer over and over again and when I watched the scene again today, I was like, and I think I thought this every time I watched the film, I thought, oh, that's not how I remember that line going. No, it's different. It's-, it's a different cut. There was, yeah. So this is take 11. Yeah. And Michael Mann, what is, this is what baffles me, right? So of a guy who's so authentic and such a perfectionist, he's like, you only get, this, you only get one go at the scene being perfect. He's like, mm. everything else is just, he's like, maybe you get one that's nearly there. He's like, but you only get that chance to do magic once. And I'm like, God, like for all the preparation, for everything that you do, can you imagine if, and this is, he even says himself, that's why he doesn't overly rehearse scenes unless, you know, you're talking about something where you're um, orchestrating action. So like you're moving chess pieces around so many times and you have to get a certain shot. But like a shot, you know, an acting piece like this is like, you're only going to get it once. And it was take 11 on this particular one that they got it. They just got the whole, the whole kit and caboodle all in one go. But it's just, and this, also go for this is beautiful awareness of what of, of from De Niro and Pacino of what they bring to this scene as well in terms of their history yes in terms of who they are in terms of their past careers in terms of what this moment means for cinema as well as themselves and I think at the time I think they're both committed actors and I think they're completely in character and I think they're all committed to what their character's doing they're not thinking about that but I feel like somewhere in the preparation and I think the let's not rehearse this we just need to sit down and do it and we will get enough from each other partly comes from the fact that I think, I mean, one, they knew each other quite well off screen and two, mm. that they both know what this means. They're not idiots. Yes. You know, they're like, they're not, they, they, they know who they are and, and what they mean to film history. And so um, there's, I, yeah, I think there's that beautiful, let's just sit here, what do you, like, let's just sit here and play. Let's just sit here and be present with each other and see what happens. And, yeah. you, and you can see that in the, the way that they, especially when you look at page to screen. So, guys, what I'm going to do, I'm going to snapshot um, for folks listening. If you go to oneheatminute.com when you're listening to this episode, um, I'll put it in the notes what the original script says, and then you, I'll just put a comparison of what they actually say, just to show that these mm-hmm. are guys who are so in their characters, they're like going, that doesn't make sense, that's too clunky, or that's too clean. Like there's some of the readings, that's what I love about two of these guys, they repeat stuff or muddle stuff, like, and it sounds like a real conversation. Like there's a moment at the end of this minute, just a door where he's like, how do you expect to hold a... He, he almost says like relationship. I'm assuming he's going to say relationship, mm-hmm. but he goes, how do you expect to hold a marriage? And I just... Yeah. I love that because that's like almost he's just trying to he's trying to search for it's the brando like except without the the cue cards you know i'm trying to search for it but relationship doesn't sound right marriage like you know because that's Mm. what it is it's like he's ever heard it before it's like it's 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 a different world it's like what's the name of that thing (laughs) where the two people (laughs) are in church there are rings they get shackled together for life Uh, i want to say is there a priest what's what's the word i'm looking for guys yeah that's the word he's with each other, but you're not doing scores. What do you call that? <laughs> <laughs> I like that you, you oh, made me laugh before you said <laughs> repeating Sorry, things. It's like De Niro has made a career out of repeating oh, things. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, show me on the show me on the drawing where that happened. Show me that. Show me on the drawing of this. Show, you know, it's like it's, every single film De Niro repeats a line at some point or another. It's 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 a little I mean, he gets paid by the word. So, <laughs> like, uh, look, not a lot of people know that about him. Look, guys, we've all written for money before, so I think we can all be happy when you get paid by the word count. Sure. Pacino gets paid by volume, like the actual, <laughs> actual volume of his lines. So it's just electric when the two of them get together. It's like screaming and then the same line over and over again. Um, and we're being very disrespectful. 
Some of the greatest actors who ever lived. Um, Repetition. Yeah, the, fin- the finest scene ever. <laughs> In the best scene ever. Um, yes, yes, and we're well. I say we. Um, yeah, it's it, it's kind of it, it is interesting watching them sort of feel one another out. I, I do like those sort of head tilts. You've got to wonder if by take eleven they kind of figured out that um, that if they just put that they're inserting all these pauses in or if like right from the get go, they were just stepping back, you know, there's, there's this great bit at the end of the line in this minute when he goes, uh, you know, that's, that's my life or something. What does he say? He goes, uh, you know, that's my story. And he sort of, and he looks off and then he looks back like he's about to say something again. And then he doesn't. Yeah. It's like, I've got another line. No, I've said enough. That's fine. That's all you need. When I read the script, there's only like one or two noted pauses. So it's just Mm. the cadence of the scene is that this is what it is. And what I love is you get something like the, you get something like the high scenes and everything's like by the, the hair's breath. And I wonder if you just read, you know, is, you know, the general rule that I'm asking Paul is the, you know, screenwriter and feature maker. It's like a, a minute a page. Yeah, about yeah. is that the general? That's the general. Yeah, that's like, that's the general rule of thumb. Yeah, like, roughly. but this is half a page and it's a minute. So mm. you know, like that that that's what I, what is striking me when I was reading it. I was looking at the script and I'm like, this is only really maybe four lines from one person, three lines from another in two big chunks, and then two sort of a couple of little random lines. And it, so it's it's not even it's maybe one page in that minute, but it's so much of it is. And, and this, this is when you were considering calling the podcast one heat page. You're like, we're going to go through page there's, by page. There's only 150 pages in the script. So it actually oh, would have, wow. it actually would have been shorter than what this podcast has turned there you out. Go. Dude, you're you're more six more. months off. Oh, just like that. Six months off. Oh man. But I think with the cadence though, is really interesting because I think I love the fact that, like you say, they're slowing this down because is looking at the background, it's interesting that, again, was everything with Michael Mann, nothing is an accident. And everyone is scurrying in the background. There is constant movement. It's mm. not just backgrounds, you know, background extras is slowly eating dinner and having nice little chats. It's people constantly swarming in the background. It's waiters coming and going away from tables. It's people moving their heads around as they're talking. And in the middle of it, and we have our very still point. It's like two, it's like, Time has slowed down in the eye of this cyclone and these guys are just going to this moment. And everything and their easy rapport and their very, you know, kind of slow kind of patter and subtle little head tilts and everything is in complete opposition to the whirlwind of life that's happening around them. Yeah, right. And it's not the first time that man yeah. has done that. It's my, it's one of my favorite, one of my favorite maybe closing moments in a film of all time is in The Insider. So, you know, at the beginning of the film, Lowell Bergman, who's played by Pacino, is like, he's in a, like, his eyes are covered. Um, He's driving through, you know, I think it's, like it's it's like the Le- it's a Lebanon town as they're about to meet uh, you know a member of Hezbollah. The the movie actually opens with his eyes behind you know draped in that in a, mm-hmm. in a terry cloth or whatever it is, and then at the end of the film he pushes open the door in this you know New York building in CBS when he's leaving when he's leaving sixty minutes and he's like see ya and it just happens in this flux and the whole world slows down as he's sort of spinning out back is spinning himself out into the universe. And it's just this really weird thing to like super subjective moment of a movie that has a few of those where you're like, mm-hmm. this guy was the eye of the storm. And right now the whole world's just slowing down around him. And I agree in this, like the pace of everything around it, especially the action that's about to come up and all of the, you know, all the staging and everything, all the momentum building. It's such an amazing, firstly, the cops being on them. Secondly, the cops not realizing that they're known about. And this is such a bold move to try and up to change the power structure again, to flip it on its head because it's like, we know about each other. You know about me. I know about you. And now boom, I'm just going to flip it and we're going to have a cup of coffee to take you back off your game. Cause once we do that, yeah. I think I've, I'm tipping the power scales again, but it's just this weird thing that doesn't, mm-hmm. there's no power. He's not, he's like you said, I think right at the beginning, Paul's like, Neil's too smart for Vincent to just like, to try, and, to try and do what he does to Albert. Yeah, give me all you got. Like shake the table. You know? <laughs> He's not going to do that in this scene. 
Yeah, I'm just thinking and doesn't, of when he, South Dakotas again. Oh, love Albert. <laughs> oh, God. Sorry, Len. No, that's right. Uh, when, when, he, when he approaches the car, doesn't he have, he's got the gun at the ready just in case. Yeah. He's and it's like, that's a situation he knows how to deal with. He's like, you know, if he starts shooting, if he tries to take me in, I can shoot my way out. It's like, you want to get a cup of coffee? And he's like, yeah, I have no idea how to deal with this situation. <laughs> and it's like so wrong-footed. And you're totally right about the power shifting back to, to Hannah because he's like taking him out for a date and he's like, well, that, you know, did not see that coming. That is, if you want to wrong foot your, your opponent, take him on a date. <laughs> uh, All right, just write that down. Out. If want to wrong foot opponent. Yep. Okay. Got it. Yep. <laughs> That's remember, it. I don't remember Sun Tzu saying that. <laughs> it's in the, um, yeah. it's in the, it's in volume two. <laughs> <laughs> it's in uh, more, more art of war. Uh, more more war. What is it good for? Um, well, to 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 art to war. I think it was called. <laughs> oh, okay, that wins. We could go down a rabbit hole with this. Um, I've got twenty more lined up. I've got to abstain. I'm staying out. I'm staying out of this. Question for you. For you gentlemen, I know Paul is an absolute godfather obsessive, but where does this where do these guys' performances you know, where do the heat where do the heat performances rank for you guys? Like are these some of your favorite screen actors? You you both in the process of your incredible show, Hell is for Hyphenates, um, and and just being general, you know, uh, cinephiles, um, have gone through huge catalogs of like amazing filmmakers like where do these guys rank amongst the american filmmaker makers and actors that you guys would have uh, you know cataloged through your whole epic journey it's tough i mean with both of these guys i mean i i spent the 80s and early to mid 90s completely obsessed with these two yes like they were um i think I almost feel like we mentioned this on our last one that that I had kind of six actors who were my sort of absolute go-to movie stars. You know, the others were like Robin Williams and Michael Keaton, and it was the early '90s, folks. Um, you know, and it was there's nothing wrong that, with that. Nothing wrong with those two. Um, I named but, my I made, I named my son Keaton. Yes, as you as you should. So, so, there it is. Um, I, I named my son Great Ass, so that'll tell you what I think of this film. <laughs> but he's but this is the thing. I mean, this is coming at an interesting point in their careers because this is I think Pacino's already begun to discover the power of the volume, um, whereas De Niro is still in the sort of the last throws of his kind of keep it quiet, let's not do comedy part of his career, and so. It's it's in an interesting transitional time because obviously I think their their seventies and and eighties work is is peerless. Um, I mean, look, Pacino's got a few duds in there, you know. Like, let's not mention author author or anything like that. But um, but I think yeah, from Sense of a Woman onwards, I mean, even Sea of Love to a certain extent. And I love Sea of Love, but there's a lot of all of a sudden it's like this Pacino has come out. No, it's this guy. It's a guy <laughs> that I think of. I think of Rob Brydon doing him rather than Pacino himself, um, rather than sort of you know Michael Corleone or um, or um, you know Wyoming's not a country, Sal. You know from Dog Day Afternoon. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so it's you know, but this is actually you know you, you've got those you know great ass and guys and all that sort of thing, but but Pacino still ha- does have those wonderful grace moments. Uh, notes in this film and a lot of them are in this scene yeah um showing that yeah no he's still got what it takes when he really kind of just sets back and allows you know allows the character to take over and de niro's work is still beautifully subtle at this point um you know like he is he is a still point for a lot of this film de niro like uh he's not ranting and raving he's not you know doing his whole you know like and it's it's sort of you know like you'd have a few good uh, years in terms of Jackie Brown and Ronan and some of this other stuff before he went into Fokker's land and we lost him forever. Um, <laughs> and we lost him so, forever. I, I won't hear a word against uh, Dirty Grandpa. Oh. Um, <laughs> d- well, Jack and Jill. 
Um, for- oh, God. <laughs> what uh, a double look, feature. Now, listen, Dr. Zach Hepburn, <laughs> if you're listening. Oh, God. Right, <laughs> Jack and Jill. Jack and Jill. And dirty. You need to clear out the ester at the end of the night. That's that's what you put on. Uh, (laughs) Dirty grandpa, Jack and Jill. But yeah, I think this is a moment when they're both, you know, fully aware. It was probably, I don't know, it's probably the right moment for it to happen. I think it's because, you know, they they they'd sort of gotten to a point. I think when their star began to outweigh their characters a bit, and this is sort of the right marriage of those two things where the star power is actually part of the characters. It's the ultimate cop mm. and the ultimate and And so they both need this kind of larger-than-life factor to kind of, you know, have a moment like this. Um, I heard, but, yeah. I heard, Niro, but, I heard De Niro say a really great thing that's made me want to go back and reappraise some of David O. Russell's films, which he said that O. Russell's style is very organic, so they've got the script and things, but they'll – very much play in scenes. And he says that sometimes a Russell's a bit of an unexpected filmmaker with, with his cast and he doesn't really, you know, a Russell's a bit of an egomaniac as you guys know. Um, but he's like that kind of guy. He'll push people. He doesn't mind who, what the egos are in the room. He's the guy who's in charge. So De Niro has really said that he enjoys working with a Russell because everything's unexpected. They might play a scene a completely different way. He says, I like working with him because sometimes you can't think, um, yeah. which I think, which, is really strange for a guy who used to like that uber prepared and the method and maybe the, the the not thinking is why when people are referencing what's good about his performances that it's natural he's not he's not over cooking anything because when you're so good and you've got such a command of most everything that you do it must be like autopilot you know like it must just be like autopilot for some of these guys later in their career but i think i i love what you just said as well paul around um Pacino as a guy who his very best performances in his later part of his career, as we probably hit, I think his last great performance is any given Sunday. Like that's my, that's my like PS de resistance of his entire film catalog. And then there's a couple of others that are half decent, but nothing, nothing that knocks your socks off after that. But I think in that movie, he's got all the gruff, but then there's the moments of vulnerability and fragility. Mm. And then he's just, and, and just, you know, he's, he feels like he, he's like in a desolate wasteland. He doesn't know what he's going to do with his life. I think that's where it's like, that's that really superb sort of last note. And, and in Heat, he really, he has it he has it under command. And like you said, their star power, they're both really handsome. They've still got it. So that vulnerability is even more profound because like right now you think they've got it all. Like these are guys that, you know, looking great, all that stuff. But they're already at the top yeah. of the tree. Yeah, definitely. And I think that, that that's correct because it's – yeah, you're not just seeing two great actors together. They they just hit that point, as you were saying, where they'd sort of been mythologized, but they were still, still in their prime. And you can sort of see when that goes off the rails where they are – you know, he is playing with his uh, – De Niro is playing with his image in – uh, meet the Fockers. Pacino is literally playing himself in Jack and Jill. You know, they've become caricatures at that point when they're when they're using that star power in that way. But back then it was just it was sort of around that period where people would refer to Pacino and De Niro as the greats. And so a generation had grown up not having seen their films anew, but having grown up with the just that baseline assumption of these are these are the great actors. Uh, and and they could have left. I think '95 was probably the right time to do it. You leave it too late, you're making the Expendables an escape plan. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, 20 years ago, I would have loved to see these guys together, but now it's just kind of a, it's a meme essentially. Yeah, it's, and look, the egos yeah. were way too big. What's you know, it's like your ego was so big that you refused to let me make you both so much more money. <laughs> like it's like <laughs> if there was just one movie where you were the good guy and I was a bad guy and yeah. or vice versa, mm-hmm. those movies make a bajillion dollars in, you know, the the early nineties. They would have been unbelievable. Yeah. Whereas like anyway, it's just madness. But, but, and 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 this would have been the opposite where it's like Oh, oh, we're so one of us is the cop, but, but the cop's kind of a bad guy, right? Okay, we both get to be bad guys, right? Everybody's happy. You know, it's, it's the opposite. It's that method actor thing of everyone wants to be the villain. But look, I, I, I am a huge fan of these guys. I think it's hard to judge it in the pantheon of um, 
of of great performances because they're so indelibly tied to their period. You know, this you couldn't get this scene in the 50s or it would have been a completely different thing. You couldn't do that scene now. And it's sort of hard to compare a, a, certain type, a certain style of performance outside of its period. But I would say, you know, as far as those and thrillers of the And the wattage of a movie star as well. Sorry, how do you mean? And the wattage of a movie star. Because movie stars now don't mean what movie stars did then. Yes. And okay. so it's like he was the wattage, the, the power. Past. Yeah, yeah, the star power. Yeah. I think there's, sorry to interrupt, but there's, yeah, um, there's that thing. It's where in the 50s it would have overwhelmed the film. Now it wouldn't mean as much because we see stars in everything. Like stars are in funny or die videos. We don't care. Whereas then was at the point when it's like we're seeing magic here. We're seeing something. And we're paying such attention to the performance um, mm. that, yeah. But sorry, I, I threw that in to kind of further illustrate your point, Lee. No, no, and I think that's absolutely right. And I think there is a power that comes with that lack of ubiquity where you can't just turn a corner and see, you know, or, 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 or watch a video on the internet that has, you know, countless iterations of performances and team-ups and matches and so on. You know, there was there was still a sense of mystique then, and it was sort of the last moment we had in cinema before that. The mystique really got stripped away by just endless content, and that probably plays into it as well. That's probably a factor when you're watching it. You're like, I'm not going to be able. You know, this isn't just some. Uh, uh, hang on, where am I going with this? I think that factors into it as well, and I think, but in terms of the the films of the nineteen nineties, the performances of the nineteen nineties, this is, you know, probably the most enjoyable. I don't know if it would be the best if you were to sit, you know, uh, acting teachers down and say what was the best performance. They might choose something that moved the acting style of the nineties forward a bit. Yes, you might have. Philip Seymour Hoffman or someone, you, you know, you, you might pick a scene from Boogie Nights or something and say, ah, oh, that was the quintessential 90s scene because that took us into this period of acting. But in terms of a, a throwback, a, a, uh, that, the, that style of acting that just changed cinema forever in the 70s, uh, we've sort of perfected that and we've distilled it down to its essence and here it is in its purest form. Before we move on, here is... And it's, a vi- and it's-, it's a victory lap. Yes, and, yeah. and you have a six-minute yeah. victory lap of, like, the two greatest who ever did it out of that era going toe-to-toe and just giving giving it all they've got. Like, literally, this is everything. They're laying it out on the line, and it, here it is. Wow. They don't have to scream. They don't have a firework. They just sit in the car and drive around and wave to the crowd. <laughs> just the, you know, the little queen yeah, wave. It's, yeah, it's yeah. just, you know... It's just they're so relaxed and beautiful in the whole thing. What I'm finding mm. as well, and this is what I wanted to float with you guys just before we wrap up, is there's like this weird. Um, so in a movie that's built with these guys are the two same sides of the coin, I feel like they're coming to a convergence in this moment. It's like Vincent's Vincent has been off the map. He has been off the rails. He's got that mania, and I feel like this is the moment where Vincent starts to be more centered and calms down. You know for basically the rest of the film. There's like one other moment where he gets Hugh Benny where he's really frustrated. Um, but this is the rest of the movie, even when he's in those heightened and intense moments where he's deeply focused. Like there's like a clinical level to Vincent Hanna that we really, you've seen, but it's done with a little bit more braggadocio throughout the rest of the film. And from this point on with Neil, I feel like he does a lot of backflips and he, and he compromises a lot. So like outside of the context of this scene, we start to see him like, we start to see him make some poor judgments, like with Treo leaving and then he has to pick mm. up Don Breeden. We see him, you know, like uh, paying money and doing extra flights and, and then going and hunting down Van Sant and like doing these other things where you're like, if this was the Neil at the beginning of the film, he keeps espousing this, not only the code of what his like morality and professionalism is and just sort of like, these are the rules of the game. If you get in front of me, I get in front of you. It's fair game. Like I'm not going to kill women and mm. children, but you're fair game. And he just he just takes so many turns to doing the decisions that at the beginning of the film, he never would have done that. I feel like 
that's as much as him being unhinged as we possibly get. And especially with, you know, the Wayne Grow, taking Wayne Grow down at the end. It's like the last, you mm. know, that people, I think what I'm finding in this is you can read so many wonderful turning points in this movie, but the more that I appraise every minute as we go through it, it's just this, it's like a tsunami building. It's like this, you know, like a, what do they, what do they say? It's like where a butterfly flaps its wings and it causes a tsunami. Like mm. I've seen the butterfly flap its wings way back here. <laughs> like the fact that he even still wants to go ahead with the job when Vincent's on his tail is not the same guy who mm. started the movie because if the heat was there around the corner, he's gone. Like, see ya. It's um, absolutely. And it's the pivotal moment of that film, not just because it comes dead center in the middle of the film <laughs> and not just because it's the one time these guys really share a moment and it's the moment we've all been waiting for, but they absolutely get in each other's head. It's, it's absolutely essential to the story because the moment they meet and I, despite all their protestations about, you know, I will, it doesn't matter that we met face to face. I'm going to take you down if I have to, um, Despite all that, they absolutely get in each other's heads. They recognize that they're kindred spirits. They're not fighting this, you know, I hate villains. Really? Yeah, well, I hate cops. They're like, no, we're basically the same person. And, <laughs> and yeah, from that point on, they're completely screwed because uh, <laughs> they're just too consumed with that idea. I also love, this is my one last uh, tangent, is so Christopher Nolan, massive man fanboy, Man mm-hmm. boy, we should just call him. Um, and uh, he, I, I, I'm going to keep saying this as we go on. I think that he made Insomnia as like the Vincent Hanna sequel to Heat, but because Christopher, <laughs> because Christopher Nolan is such a bleak mofo, and people in his movies are often so deluded that lie to themselves. Like you just look at all these movies, all of his characters lie to themselves periodically, and that gets them into different situations of, and usually the people around them into these like vacuums of hell. Um, but basically, uh, he lie, he lies to himself. He's the Vincent Hanna that would never be in this movie though. Cause like he, he's posing a world where Vincent Hanna would actually be so intent on catching a person that he was not good enough to catch him. So that he he would forge evidence so that that would be caught and that would be the thing that broke him. Mm. And so mm. that's my uh, little, little tidbit for this as well as like one thing that never happens in heat, which I really like is that no matter how gnarly Neil really is as a bad guy. And I think this is why people still can deeply have sympathy for him. He's not a really disgusting pervert like Wayne Grow. And the one thing I love about mm. Vincent is that he doesn't, He's not ever, he would never compromise to step over the line to do something criminal to catch someone. Because at the end of the day, mm. he wants to catch mm. them and keep them caught. So there's this yes. weird things, right? Where you see these guys together, they get in each other's head, they do things. But also, I think there's this great rigid, it's that archetype that they get to stay and play and mm. just give the detail to. I just love that well, as well. Well, they both live by a solid code. Yes. They both have a very structured moral and, and um, professional code that they live by, which, again, is something that's layered throughout man's work. Mm-hmm. So I think that's right. I, I, I like the insomnia theory. It certainly is a lot better than my insomnia as a sequel to Patch Adams' theory. I, <laughs> I think he's got a much stronger. Uh, yeah, well, look. I mean, Patch, Patch got messed up and moved to Canada. What can I say? What can I say? Um, it fits. All the clues are there. <laughs> all the clues are there. Now, I did ask the gents to um, to to indulge me something silly uh, as a special because this is, you know, guys, this is the centerpiece of this movie. You know, this is my mini, you know, just after halfway celebration of getting through. We are at if we're at the ninety first minute, then that really means that we're only sixty nine episodes away from the end of this show. Nice. It's a little, um... Uh, the Bill and Ted Wild Stallions 69 <laughs> guitar pick there. Good. So many deep cuts in this podcast. I'm going to have to go back and listen. <laughs> Again, these guys, this crew is good. Now, I've asked... There are more. There are more is that they're good. I've asked, I've asked the gents to join me, and maybe, maybe because Paul's got the Vincent Hanna down, I might get Lee to do Neil. Gentlemen, I've sent you the script... Oh, you were serious about that? I'm not, okay. I'm All not right, mucking around. See. So I think that maybe <laughs> uh, I should get Paul to do to do Vincent and Lee to do Neil. 
and just if you could just uh, speak the lines of dialogue, uh, that would be Can amazing. I do Neil as Pacino because my Pacino is really good. Okay. What if we both do Pacino? I think you should. No, well, no, I, okay. I, 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 think you switch, should... I could switch to De Niro if you want to do Pacino. Okay. No, no, it's fine. I can take a rest. Okay. No, no, you do Pacino. I, I, I do like your Pacino. I think, I think that's appropriate. I think you should like both Bob do Brighton. Pacino in this minute and then both do <laughs> Neil in this minute. Uh, both do De Niro. So let's kick it off. Uh, Paul, you can go with Hannah. And then uh, Lee, you can go with Neil. Ladies and gentlemen, these are the legends from Hell is for Hyphenates joining me for episode <laughs> 91 of One Heat Minute. And they're about to indulge me by reading the dialogue from the scene. Gentlemen, take it away. Have we waited too long for our minute? Like, like it was a, <laughs> it's the right time. Like, are we, you know, are we doing no, this around Fox? This is, All right. this crew go. is good, Paul. This crew is good. <laughs> All right. All right, so I, I think you can just start on the full page of dialogue. You go straight okay. into my life. I think that's the great I, starting point. I was just going to go with, yeah. <laughs> All right, go, Lee. You're that, in. All right. <clears throat> the regular type of life. That your life? Yeah. Uh, my life? <laughs> yep. no. Oh, sorry. I'm, I'm having trouble with the script here, with the pages. All right, here we go. Start again. Go. I this is wouldn't have. This, this is, is why, straight into my life. This that, is why we went to take 11. Take 11. Take 11. Here we go. Yeah. That regular type of life. That your life? My life? No. My life? My life is a disaster, so I got a stepdaughter so fucked up because her real father's this large type asshole. I got a wife. We're passing each other on the downslope of a marriage. My third. Because I spend all my time chasing guys like you around the block. That's my life. A guy told me one time. Actually, I repeat myself a lot. Two guys told me two times. Don't let yourself get attached to anything you are not willing to walk out on in 30 seconds flat. I repeat, in 60 seconds flat. If you feel the heat around the corner. Pause. Now, if you're on me and you've got to move when I move. How do you expect to keep a uh, I, – I think I'm starting to turn into Pacino here. <laughs> no, let me try that again. So if, now if you're on me and you got to move when I move, how do you expect to keep a uh, uh, – what do you call it? Uh, I want to say marriage. Oh, my God. You two are absolutely delightful. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been one of that, the funnest. That's a word. This has been one of the funnest things I've ever done in my life, and it's this show, as I say, continues to be endlessly rewarding. I'm blessed and honoured to grace your ears with the legendary duo, the dynamic duo that started off uh, Hell is for Hyphenates, and Lee obviously continues. Paul making great films. Trench, when the hell is it coming to Sydney? When can I goddamn see it, sir? We'll talk up to the show is over. Um, once again. Thank you so much for listening, subscribing. Please rate and review the show if you can. If you want to find Paul at Cinema Viscera on the Twitter sphere, Lee at Lee Zachariah. Uh, Garth Franklin, thank you for our web design. Mr. Paul Davies, thank you for our rock and theme. And gentlemen, thank you for coming on the show and being a part of this thank madness. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, we'll catch another episode of One Hit Minute just around the corner.